The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. So I'm pleased to welcome Alexandra Pelletier to the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Alexandra is a, a partner at the French VC fund Cap Horn, and he invests in enterprise software and SaaS ventures like Pal Software, Reach5, and Asagi. Uh, prior to becoming a VC, Alexandra had uh, leadership roles at uh, Tata Communications and Microsoft. Um, so Alex, delighted to have you on the show. Thank you for welcoming me, Gary. Very pleased to be here. <laughs> now it's, uh, it's early April 2020, and the world is really struggling with the extraordinary fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. How's your portfolio responding to these unprecedented challenges? And what sort of advice are you giving to the, the CEOs and founders in, within your portfolio? Well, obviously, we've been quite focused on our portfolio in the past few weeks. It's the first thing is we've been amazed with the response from our founders and the way that they've handled the crisis. The one thing we know we all know is we don't know what the crisis will look like and what will come out of it and what the world will look like when we come out of it. So they they obviously need know the need to adapt. Um, we were lucky at Caporn. Wherein, you know, most of our companies got refinanced last year, <laughs> and uh, therefore, very, very few have a short-term need for cash. So the runway is there. You know, some of them have more than two years runway. The first advice, you know, we we gave them, and and they all acknowledge is extend your runway as much as possible. Cash is king in times of crisis, especially when you have no clue when it will stop and when you know when we'll start recovering from it so what we're telling them is look pay attention to your cash and therefore pay attention to how much you're spending and pay attention to you know how fast you're collecting from your clients <laughs> these are very important things and, and basically like most vcs that we have been talking to most of my peers uh, that, that i work with we're telling them look you need to have somehow about 18 months of runway you know, to, to be in a position where you can where you can go through that crisis. The other advice we're telling them is that you need to be very close to your clients. And in enterprise software, it's super important. Their clients, our, top, our founders' clients, are suffering from the crisis as well. And the key thing, the first thing they did was to reach out to them and first of all ask them how they were doing and they were doing okay. And it's, you know, instead of going after deals you know some of them were closing deals and are still closing deals but the first thing was to care about the clients uh and you know be you know, move from a from a hunting uh, you know, activity to more of a customer success approach to to their clients so you know being very customer centric and focused at this time uh, is extremely important to make sure you uh, you have a good feel for uh, how your customers are going to react and, uh, and make sure you care for them. The, and first and foremost, and I should have said that in the first place, it's really take care of your teams. It's, it's a crisis for companies, it's a crisis for people. It's, uh, it's something we've never seen before in our markets. And it's, uh, you know, 
suddenly being quarantined and all working from home is a whole different, it's a big paradigm shift for a lot of us. And, uh, you know, you need to adapt and you need to make sure your people are safe. You know, you need to make sure they're feeling good about uh, how you set up. And obviously it's a different way of working and you need to make sure that everyone on the team in each and every portfolio companies feels strong, you know, feels good about their setup and their ability to work, to, 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 to carry on with their work. And, uh, you know, with, when you have young kids <laughs> quarantined with you at home, not going to school anymore, we know it's a, it's, it's a very tricky situation. It's a tricky situation for our founders. It's a tricky situation for some of our colleagues as well that have you know, young kids at home. So we all need to adapt. And I think we're all in the same boat, whether startups or whether VCs, we're all in the same boat uh, with a you know, new way of working and, and that you know, need to adapt. And then, you know, one key thing we've done was to build on that uh, very strong sense of community at Caphorn within our founders. So obviously amongst ourselves on the team, we we are connecting more than ever, even though remotely, but we we are connecting uh, formally and informally very regular times of the day. So we're always on, on video connecting with each other. And we're making sure also that our startups are connecting with each other. And, uh, you know, we have CEO COVID calls, we have CFO calls, CMO calls, you know, around among the community to share best practices, to give each other advice, to give each other your remote tap on the shoulder, you know, share best, uh, you know, share some ideas, ways that they've, you know, they've come across that crisis and, uh, you know, basically share the tips and tricks of how to go about this. Obviously, a number of your portfolio companies have French head offices, not not all of them, but many of them. Is mm-hmm. the French government doing anything um, in particular to help startups and scale-ups survive during this crisis? Well, definitely, yes. You know, as much as you know, people may have complained of how the French government was behaving with entrepreneurs in the past, it's definitely changed in recent years. It's a time of crisis that you see it. And uh, the BPI especially has been of tremendous support. Uh, the French government, you know, uh, the different associations within the ecosystem have been of tremendous support. The community has supported itself. The French government itself through the BPI is offering to back private banks loans to startups, you know, up to 90% of the loan. So basically they're backing every single uh, non-dilutive financing that's coming up from these, uh, the, these commercial banks. So they're making sure basically they're effectively reducing their exposure. And, you know, they've, they've also, the French government has come up with a partial unemployment plan whereby, you know, companies may apply for partial or full unemployment that's covered by the government up to 84% of salaries. That really provides an awful lot of flexibility you know, for, 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 for our founders, for, for our startups workforce but also visibility on their cash runway through that, uh, that, that private debt backing uh, from the BPI. So very strong response from the French government, I must say. And, uh, uh, and we're seeing similar things happening elsewhere in Europe. I guess you know, the, uh, we know the European Union is also looking at backing the overall economy. Because the, the, the one thing we have to think of in our special world of startups is that uh, you know, obviously, we're looking at it from 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 our lens with you know startups being at risk. But the you know there, there are many 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 small businesses out there that are basically 
<laughs> zero business right now, and they also need to be backed. And it's your your baker, <laughs> your local retailer, you know, whatever it is. All these guys are closed. Uh, they have no work. And uh, you know, when we talk about runway, you know, when our startups have 12, 18, 24 months of runway, these small shops, you know, the mom and pop shops, they run on 15, if not 30, you know, 30. 15, 30 days of, uh, of cash runway. So uh, they're, they're, you know, it was essential for the government to, to support them. And, and we've seen that with sheer force from the French government. That was, that was quite good. Uh, that's, that's encouraging. Now, before this crisis broke, what are the startups you deal with focused on getting the basics right? Or were they being swept away by the boom times? Well, interesting question. The uh, you know, and when you look at it in hindsight, obviously, in a world where the economy is booming, funds are bond, and it's uh, you know you, you're basically running your startup, you're probably burning too much more cash than you should, and what you're thinking about is your next round of financing. So uh, it's really about getting private equity to fund you round after round, and um, and you know, some CEOs' game plan was really to make sure secure that funding, that next round of funding. So you've got to make sure you're growing to be attractive and to be funded in the right conditions. But you know, typically the market was headed that way, uh, with very large rounds and a very fast pace of funding. So probably some startups may have forgotten about their agility. Uh, you know, being close to their cash, being nimble. You know, there was probably a bit of complacency around some of those startups that were basically just whose game plan was really to, to raise more money round after round. Any particular things you're asking them to change or pay attention to? Well, I'd probably pay more attention to, but uh, I must say at Capon, one thing, we, we tend to be very quite down to earth VC, so... We may not be going after the sexiest deals where you know you're looking at the, the, the gigantic rounds of funding. Uh, what we like in our founders and, and the companies that we invest in is that they have, and that's one thing we've been, always been looking at thoroughly, is their unit economics. And the unit economics is really when you're selling a deal, are you on that specific deal actually making money? And what kind of margin are you looking at? What we know, in it, especially in enterprise software and enterprise SaaS, is there are scale effects and there's a there's a minimum, you know, there's there's volume that you need to get to to absorb all the fixed costs that you have. But if your variable cost, if your marketing cost to catch any kind of deal, you know, basically provide you with a margin that's not uh, and a unit margin uh, that's not in the range that we deem to be acceptable, then you know we probably won't believe in the model going forward. The the, um, the key thing is unit economics is something we've always looked at. So what we're telling our, our startups now is look, uh, your break-even point. Uh, what you're looking to do is is for your break-even point, are you when all your deals, all your business that you're coming in, you're bringing in, uh, will be generating a profit at some point and absorbing by absorbing all those fixed costs that you have. You probably need to bring it forward, and therefore look at how you can you can reduce those 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 fixed costs that you have in order for your your business to to get closer to profitability. But unit economics is really about you know when you do something, uh, whatever you know, whatever spend whatever dollar you spend on, make sure there's an ROI attached to it, 
And when you're selling a deal, make sure that the, you know, in enterprise SaaS, you expect a minimum of 80% gross margin. If you're not there, there's probably something wrong with your business. I know you're a big believer in partnering um, for enterprise software startups and scale-ups. Um, is it possible for enterprise software startups to succeed without partnerships with larger, better-known corporates, or is that an absolute prerequisite in your opinion? Well, that's a strong conviction on my end, and that's probably due to my background uh, working for your know, large telcos or large uh, software um, uh, providers like Microsoft, where if I look at Microsoft, which is the largest market cap in the world, uh, they, they sell about 100% of their business through partners uh, or with partners, and there's different models. What, what I tell, and, you know, and they've done that consistently over the past 40 years, the, what, what I'm telling my startups quite bluntly uh, is, look, as a startup, you basically have no trying to sell into enterprise, so you know, Fortune 500. Uh, you have no brand, uh, you know, and whatever amount of marketing you, you put to it, you know, you, you'll never be able to 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 uh, you know to 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 compare with uh, or to fight uh, the large tech players out there, whom enjoy you know sheer brand recognition. So you have no brand. Getting to market is very hard, and as a unknown startup knocking on the door. Of a um, of a Fortune 500 client uh, will you know, will be it will make it very tough, very difficult for you to, to to get through a deal if you're not partnering with someone that can provide a stamp uh, against your, your and add to your credibility or provide you with credibility. So what I mean by this is typically an enterprise software partnering with the large you know tech play with, with what I call influencers and those influencers. There are three types of them from my perspective. There's the giant tech players, the giant platforms, uh, not the Gathams, but what I call the Gamisos. So the Googles, AWS, Microsoft, IBM, Salesforce, SAP, Oracle, you, know, you name it, of this world. But these big players, um, you know, a typical IT buyer will never get fired for choosing IBM, uh, but could get fired for selecting a very small competitor of IBM that may go uh, down or that may not you know, deliver again, you know, against their promise. So, you know, partnering with these guys by providing solutions that are, uh, you know, that are complementary to their platform, that are built on their platform, provides for uh, credibility. Likewise, partnering with consulting firms, advisories that are recognized by their clients and coming, coming to, going to market with them hand in hand gives you credibility. The same with systems integrators that your clients respect and work with today. So being able to go to market with the system integrator that your client is working with, again, creates credibility for your, for your service because A, you're not alone providing that service. You have competition. You have competition from other startups. You have competition from much larger players. You have a unique selling proposition. You have a value prop that you want to put forward, but you know, your value prop alone will not get get you the, the deal that you're going after, unless you are working with an influencer. Um, that that's you know that's how I, I kind of view the world. 
uh, out of my experience of working with and for those very large tires and, and brands. Alexandra, you mentioned three types of influencers. So the first one, the giant platforms, the Googles, the Salesforce, yeah. the Amazons of this world. The second group, is that the systems integrators that you yes. mentioned? Yeah, the second group systems integrators, so those very large ones, you know, the Cat Geminis, you know, you name it, you know, the, well, the Indian system integrators and, and, and very small ones that are very specific, that may be very close to what you do. Basically, people that can deliver your solution and that will make a business out of delivering your solution to their clients. So these are firms and brands that are established with your client, which may not be your case, but you know, going to uh, customers saying, look, my solution does this and solves your problem. Uh, and these guys that you know really well and that you trust will be implementing it uh, together with me. Then uh, you know, you're more likely to, to win your customer over than going on your own and saying, well, look, now, you know, find, uh, find an integrator that will, that will deliver the solution. Uh, the third uh, is, um, the, the third type of influencer is the um, management consulting firms. And again, there's the big ones, the Bains, the BCGs, uh, the Ron Berger, all these guys. And there's smaller ones that are, again, very specific, that are uh, sometimes highly verticalized and specialized, but that are recognized by your customers. Uh, because they've been they've been around for a while, and you know my view of management consultants is beyond delivering slides and advice. They also need to provide solutions for their customers. And what I like about startups that are very specialized, verticalized, so whether horizontally specialized, i.e., delivering a very thin uh, layer of the horizontal technical stack. Uh, for customers, but they, they deliver something you know in the stack that's that's a must or that's becoming a must or that's that's needed in the current um, uh, layout of the company, of the client, uh, or a very verticalized solution that delivers a very specific uh, solution to a very specific problem for a very specific uh, industry, uh, but that's scalable worldwide. Uh, these are the companies that I that I that I am interested in. Because I know they can work hand in hand with those uh, influencers, uh, either by deploying on top, uh, on top of their infrastructure, and/or uh, by uh, you know, being so specific that the big players cannot deliver a customized solution each time, but will want to work with someone that can address a specific problem uh, at any given time. Okay, question for you then. Since the, the rationale behind the partnering is to get voice visibility, access to these large corporates, the, um, the top 500 or so global um, blue chips, um, and yet several of the influencing categories you mentioned are themselves huge, big blue chip corporates. So you've got the giant platforms, like Google, you've got the larger SIs and the larger management consultancies. So I can see how the smaller SIs, the niche players, and the smaller consultancies that you might be able to, to get visibility relatively easily. But I'm wondering how, as a startup with no brand, you gain visibility with Google, Bain, um, Cap Gemini, who are as big 
um, and complex as the large corporates you're ultimately trying to sell to through those partners? Right. So obviously that's the big names are your ultimate goal. Uh, you know, ideally you want to get started with, 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 with smaller players that have probably more flexible, uh, they have the flexibility and probably a, a closer culture to work with you. Now that said, when you are, you know, so, so that's the first step, but even, even then, if you have a very specific value prop, uh, that will be of interest to a, let's talk about a, a company that I, I know better than others, uh, in that group at Microsoft, uh, you know, if you are, if your solution is deployed on Azure and you are covering a problem that, um, that, you know, you'd need special integration and special work to be done on top of Azure for, for Microsoft to be able to deliver it. But you actually deliver something that their customers, um, you're solving a problem that their customers have uh, and is deployed on Azure. Well, the culture of Microsoft is to help you get there because, you know, the more you sell, the more Azure you'll use. And, you know, bottom line, you know, you'll be more entrenched in, 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 their, in their platform. And, and they'll get more business from you. So that solves a client's problem and that basically allows you to grow on their platform. So it, it's a win-win uh, for all parties, for all three parties, a win-win-win. Um, so if you, are, if you have a very verticalized approach uh, with something that's highly scalable that Microsoft can market anywhere around the world because they have a variety of customers that uh, have that same problem that they do not address with a specific, pro- with a specific solution that's ready to market, then you know you can win them over even at early stage. For the big influencers, what we're seeing is you know we'll see we'll work hand in hand with the likes of Ron Berger, which is a big European consultancy, and you know they their customers are asking them to come up with uh, very specific solutions to their very specific problems that the large players cannot deliver against, and that startups have specialized delivering against. So we work hand in hand with them and they introduce them, us to or, or our portfolio companies to uh, very large customers because the startups that we've invested in actually deliver a solution against a, a very specific problem that their customers experience. So it's, I think the more specialized you are, uh, the more verticalized you are, the, 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 the higher the likelihood of, uh, of being attractive to these, to these guys. And then you need to obviously know how to deal with them and hiring the kind of talent that has experience doing this. It's not something you learn overnight, but hiring alliance and partner managers that have, experience, that have built experience uh, working for um, those large players is a must-have as well uh, in those companies. It's something we look into or we help source for, for our startups. Okay, so that's something that you're very active in influencing, persuading, and supporting getting um, top-class alliance and partner managers into each portfolio company? Right, uh, definitely. We, we believe it's a must. And, uh, you know, I think it's for those that, you know, it's something that we, in our deal flow meetings, it's something that I, that I oftentimes check is, you know, in their go-to-market, it's something that I assess very uh, uh, extensively. Um, whereby, you know, I ask him what the view of the world is. If we don't, you know, if they don't see it, if we don't share the same view, well, probably they can work with someone else, but, you know, probably be less interesting for them. 
if they share that view, but they don't know where to go because they have not worked a uh, uh, similar goal to, you know, such goal to markets before, they don't know what to look, they don't know what kind of people to go, to go after, uh, then that's when I can help them and, and be a useful VC uh, towards them. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the VC model overall? Do you think it's fit for purpose for a post-pandemic world? Well, that's a big question. We, it's kind of hard to say because we don't know uh, what the, uh, the post-pandemic world will look like. What we know, is, what we know for sure is that there'll still need, there'll need to be, there'll need to be uh, uh, innovation. You'll need, you know, the world will need to adapt. So clients, uh, whether you know, in the B2B or B2C world, people will change their habits. Some of them will. The, the, the tougher the crisis, the more it will have an impact on how you know, people behave, uh, purchasing habits, needs, everything. You know, these things could change. It may not change, but could change. Um, I think, so there'll be a need to innovate to change, and you'll need VCs to back that up. Uh, I think the, uh, the pandemic is also showing that you need to, to adapt your digital transformation. There was a joke going around LinkedIn, uh, saying, you know, what, what's driving your digital transformation? Are you CEO, your CIO, or, or the COVID? <laughs> and obviously, you know, I think I think a lot of, of corporates have been sort of uh, forced to accelerate their digital transformation to to adapt their IT systems, to adapt their way of working, uh, to adapt all the tools that they have within the w- within the company uh, to be able to have everybody work from home and deliver a flawless experience for everybody. <laughs> so, uh, you know. I think the the need for digital transformation for traditional companies is is definitely heightened by, by this crisis, and uh, and that provides you know enterprise platforms, enterprise software, enterprise technology companies uh, with a tremendous opportunity to uh, to to work with those traditional companies, uh, and so you know and that will need that will require VCs uh, uh, VC funding to fuel you know those innovations, those new products. And I think the uh, uh, so it does not, you know, it does not question the need for for, for venture capital. Probably question how we do things uh, and whether we are, you know, how we how we work with our startups. And you know, I think that we've seen more and more VCs on the market over the past uh, five years. Uh, we were created ten years ago in the midst of the two thousand and nine crisis. Uh, so, you know, we've been there. <laughs> I think it's, you know, and, and we've seen, you know, I'm not saying we, we know it all, and by all means we don't. We're just lucky enough to have the experience of, of knowing what going through a crisis is. Firm. The, you know, I think we'll probably need to adapt how, where, you know, when, uh, to, in what shape, what form, I don't know. Uh, we need to be very attentive to what the mar- where the market is headed and, and where, how innovation needs to be funded. Uh, I think we need to be more careful uh, about uh, what we do and how we work with founders uh, to make sure we, we fund the right innovations where that, that the market will demand going forward. But it's, it's very hard to, to imagine what the market will look like. This, this obsession with unicorns, uh, with funding companies that are scaling rapidly but are not profitable and um, giving them more cash to scale even more aggressively 
still not profitable. Um, and uh, I, I interviewed Ayo Malinger from uh, another VC based out of London, Beringia. A month or two ago, he talked about um, rhinos, focusing on rhinos instead as the unicorn's um, ugly but ultimately sustainable cousin. So what are, what are your thoughts on this kind of excessive focus, obsession really, on on funding, creating and funding unicorns versus a slightly less or maybe even substantially less um, aggressive focus on, um, on sustainable businesses? Right. Yeah, we've seen in the markets, uh, what we hear is uh, uh, there's an obsession for unicorns. I like the idea of rhinos. What we say f- within the firm at Capcorn is uh, uh, we don't necessarily believe in unicorns. Uh, we believe in good horses. Uh, and it's <laughs> basically, uh, and we're obviously looking for race horses and not every horse with that tongue will be a, a, a great race horse. And we know that is the nature of our business. Obviously, companies value the billion uh you know getting some of those in our portfolio will augment uh, our roi you know no doubt and that, that's you know that's statistical so you know it'd be great to be exposed to those what we see is uh, the reason we're running a 130 million euro fund uh, and nothing bigger than that is because we think it's 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 the right size of fund for for, for the market currently you know the unicorns there's only very few of them not all of them are actually liquid uh, actually, it's the minority. So it's a great paper valuation, but you need to realize it. The reality of the tech market in Europe is, you know, acquisitions, you know, if you get to about $300, $400 million, it's really quite a big, uh, it's quite a big exit. It's, it's actually a huge exit in the European market today. The vast majority of exits are, you know, around 100 200 So it's, uh, you know, We'd love to have unicorns in our, in, in our portfolio. We have some companies that have that potential, but it's not our, it's not our, our objective is not to, to just hunt down unicorns because uh, I think it's, uh, what we know is to build a, a company that has a billion dollar valuation is you'll need to fund and fund, get, put a lot of money towards it. You never know where it's going to end. And look at WeWork, uh, you know, ah. where, where, <laughs> You know, from a 47 billion valuation, they could not IPO at three, uh, and we're not even sure the company is going to is going to sustain. Typical example of a company that has a non-sustainable business model, where you know, it's in the end, it's real estate. Uh, they should be ma- making money out of every uh, building they have, save perhaps for a flagship in, in in every given city, where it's okay to lose money because that allows you to build about 10, 20 different. Uh, uh, office centers where, where you're making money. I think it's going back to unit economics and going back to unsexy but profitable businesses. You know, if you look at the businesses that have gone through the year, you know, that have passed uh, through crisis, that have survived uh, through through the years, they're profitable businesses. So in the end, you may you know focus on if you have sound unit economics. And you know where your break-even point is, where you know you you can absorb all your fixed costs and start making money. In the end, that's what you're looking at. And fueling uh, growth uh, to me is just getting to that break-even point faster, and 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 building profitable businesses. But if you look at uh, there, there are obviously counterexamples to this. Uh, Amazon I think takes about 20 years to, to start making money, uh, and. and uh, uh, 
you know, it's it's a counterexample, but if you look at a lot of the tech companies that I mentioned earlier, they're all generating gigantic profits. Apple is so rich with cash, so is Microsoft. Um, I mean, these companies are selling software. Uh, they obviously invest tons of money every year to innovate and build new products, but they sell these products with a very comfortable uh, profit margin, and, and they make money every year. I think the uh, the North Star, to me, a North Star for, 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 for a startup today, you know, should be and should have been all the time to at some point have a, uh, a path to profitability. Uh, the question is, you know, how, how many customers you need to have to be profitable and absorb uh, that, that, that portion of fixed costs that you have. But, you know, th that should be your, your main goal as an entrepreneur because, uh, the sheer logic of just raising more money to grow and, and looking just at the growth rate without any, any path to profitability. Uh, you know, the day you hit a crisis like the one we're hitting today, uh, you know, it, 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 you'd be in very dangerous terrain. So although there are a lot of unknowns here, what's your best guess in terms of the way the the VC market itself will adapt and change once we're through the worst of this pandemic? Well, probably one of the things will be what the VC market will look like, whether there'll be fewer VCs, more of them, uh, bigger funds, smaller funds. Um, that it's very hard to tell because I think we're just in deep fog right now. And, uh, I could I could make prophecies that just you know would, would prove completely wrong. Uh, so it's, it's very hard to tell. What what I think is the key thing is uh, profitable uh, will become sexy. So at some point, sexy was you know triple digit growth, you know rates that you know below 100% growth. Uh, I don't care, regardless of your burn rate, regardless of your uh, so regardless of your burn rate, that, that, that people were just looking at the growth. Uh, to me, it's like uh, things that I was, I've always been looking at is how much are you burning relative to your monthly recurring revenue? And just burning more than your monthly recurring revenue to me is highly questionable. Uh, I think going forward, we'll be looking at you know, the, the ratio, the MR to burn ratio. Uh, will be more important than your growth rate. Um, that's you know, probably that's one way I'll be looking at the market. Uh, your path to profitability will be more important than your growth rate. So, and the clarity as to how you're going to become profitable will be much more important. Um, profitable businesses are are extremely well valued. Uh, I think there is that Notion Lab. Uh, it's forty people uh, business that have been profitable. You know, ever since they've just raised 50 million to be able to, uh, to to grow more aggressively, to invest into their growth, but they have unit economics that are so strong that you know they can run, they can run a very nice business, um, uh, and it's a software, it's an enterprise software business, uh, with, with uh, uh, you know, and they're profitable every day. And you know, the the, the only decision was to to invest in B two C. Think of companies like. Uh, that the French dating site Meetech had always been profitable. They raised money to be able to 
to to extend internationally and acquire their their the European competitors at the time, even Chinese and Brazilian, if I remember well. But these guys had always been profitable. The only reason for raising money was not to make up for net, to make up for the non profitability. It was to it was to grow and acquire acquire a share. But if you're not if you cannot show that your business can be profitable, if you if you reduce it to the core to the bone, uh, then you know what's your plan to get there, and what is it that you need? Um, and that's something I think VC will be looking into, you know, way more carefully going forward uh, than they have in the past. It's a big message for any entrepreneurs or budding entrepreneurs expect a lot more scrutiny on path to profitability, um, especially when you're engaging with, uh, with VCs like Cap Home. Awesome. Well, we've kind of covered a lot of topics. Um, it's a kind of interesting, scary time to be recording a podcast about tech sector and investment and growth when we are, as, as you pointed out, in the fog in the midst of this global pandemic. But uh, we would emerge in a few months from this and then we have to to look forward to that post-pandemic world um i'd like to wish you and your your stable of sexy thoroughbreds um success during and uh, after the pandemic and, and wish you and your family um um safe times as well well thank you likewise take care of yourselves and uh, to all your uh, to, to all those listening to the podcast hope you you'll you'll make it through the crisis uh, and come out stronger uh, because you know this is also, and I've not mentioned it. It's an opportunity to rethink the way you run your business, to rethink your product. Uh, it, crisis have always been opportunities, and look at companies today that have been, that have exited the market that that, that were created in the um, through the 2000 crisis and to, through the 2009 crisis. Uh, there, there are some gigantic companies out there. So it's a good time to start a business. It's a good time to rethink of your business. And um, yeah, good luck to everybody. <laughs> well said, excellent advice and great to end on, a, on an optimistic note there. Thanks, Alexandra. Thank you, Gary. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. <laughs>